confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com, code GLOW. This is the Oxford University Hospital, and let me introduce you to Brian Pinker. On the 4th of January 2021, we all watched the first people getting the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. Now, he became the very first person to be vaccinated. To be honest, I didn't feel a thing. It felt like a glimmer of hope. To my mind, it's, it's the only way of getting back to a bit of normal life. It works, it's been signed off, it's safe and effective and a source of national pride. And so the Prime Minister was the first person I saw, and I walked into the Cabinet room, and before the meeting even started, I said, we've got our jab. But more than two years on, storm clouds have started to gather. Papers have been lodged in court, and the jab has been dropped by the government altogether. It's still hailed in many ways as a fantastic vaccine, one that has undoubtedly saved millions of lives. But for at least 140 people who had the Oxford AstraZeneca jab, the consequences were catastrophic. To watch this healthy, loving man being taken out in a black body bag from your home. But in the context of a global pandemic, some of those affected felt forced into the shadows. We're not anti-vax. This is what I hate. Neil wouldn't have gone for that vaccination. I don't think you can call anyone who's got a vaccine injury or died because of a vaccine anti-vax because they obviously took the vaccine that they were told to take. Some people felt like no one wanted to hear about them. You know, there was not much on these vaccine deaths. We've trapped ourselves in this binary world where it's either pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine. And that's not how the world works. It felt like we were just being pushed to the background. But as the COVID inquiry starts to hear evidence from those adversely affected, we want to tell their stories. What happened to them? Was enough done to help them cope with the consequences? Perhaps, as a society, we need to reflect on whether we've supported these people enough. They're sort of being hidden away as a dirty secret. And perhaps that's why there hasn't been the kind of political engagement that these families have desperately needed. And of course, we want to hold decision makers, like the former vaccine minister, to account. I completely understand that. I hope the minister responsible would look at that very carefully. I'm sure they will. I'm Claire Newell, and this is the Lockdown Files podcast, episode six, The Forgotten Victims. In autumn 2020, Stay at home. the country had just entered its second national lockdown. Protect our NHS and save lives. We've been told that there could be up to 4,000 deaths a day during the winter, and many of us were starting to wonder if it would ever end. But there was some hope. We will be ready 
to start the vaccination next month with the bulk of the rollout in the new year. Labour had been calling for a vaccine minister and the Prime Minister agreed. It was a complicated and uncertain job and it was handed to a then relatively unknown junior minister. Boris picked up the phone and said, I need you to lead the vaccine deployment uh, and become the vaccine minister. You might recognise that voice from one of our earlier episodes. It's Nadim Zahawi. During the pandemic, his career underwent a meteoric rise before it all came crashing down. But when he takes this phone call from the PM, his star is on the ascent. In a typical Boris fashion, he said, you know, your country needs you. I'm going to need you to take this thing on. You're the perfect minister to do this. And I said, Prime Minister, thank you. Of course I'll do it, with one caveat. And he pauses, what's that? And I said, uh, I need to be able to speak with your authority. And what I mean by that is I've got to have access to you, not in days or weeks, in minutes mm. and hours. In the government, there was a team of people in charge of procuring the vaccine for the whole country. Zahawi was in charge of the second phase, actually getting it into people's arms. And he said, you got it, you got it, absolutely. And he was good to his word. You know, he would literally call every night, so between 10 and 11 o'clock at night, um, when I would text him, so I need to talk to you, he's straight on the phone, always made time to make a decision or uh, to look at the details. The plan came together. That worked incredibly well. I was very proud to be you know, a part of that team. Zahawi is talking about a team effort. But in the WhatsApp messages, we can see something a bit different. I'm talking about the WhatsApp messages we got from Matt Hancock's phone. If you're wondering how the leak came about, you can go and listen to episode one of this series. And in those WhatsApp messages we get some insight into what appears to be happening behind the scenes, the tussle between ministers. In April 2020, newspapers started to talk about vaccines as a potential way out of this crisis. The front page of the Daily Mail, for example, said, Vaccine Hope for Britain. And here's what Matt Hancock writes to one of his advisers. Front pages on vaccine are unreal. You are totally right. I must own this. I must own this. It feels like the beginnings of a land grab. And only a few months later, in November, it comes up again. The health secretary appears upset about the prospect of another minister giving interviews on a major development with vaccines. In a text to another aide, he writes, It must not, all caps, be ALOC! Exclamation mark. He's talking about Alok Sharma, who back then was the Secretary of State for Business and Energy, and he was involved in the buying of the vaccines for the UK. Matt Hancock seems fearful that his colleague Sharma could steal the limelight and give an interview. A former Downing Street source told us, It wasn't like Alok was making a bid. He was pretty busy trying to keep businesses afloat. But the source did say that they thought Matt Hancock was very cross about not being given the vaccines brief. We asked Matt Hancock about these kind of WhatsApp messages. He said in a statement that, quotes, The Telegraph's partial reporting of leaked WhatsApps has already been shown to be false, misleading and following a preconceived agenda. He said, quotes, In this case, what the whole record shows is an incredibly successful vaccination effort that saved many lives in the UK and around the world, end quotes. 
Within weeks of the AstraZeneca vaccine being rolled out, Matt Hancock writes in a text that they need to own the exit. When we um, worked on the lockdown files, I could see in the messages that um, there was a kind of consensus, really, that the vaccine was the way out of lockdown. Is that how you felt? Completely. Absolutely. The thing that I kept reminding myself and my team is that, yes, we have procured 450 million doses, but it doesn't matter how many we've procured or how many are in the warehouse until we got them into people's arms. It was a massive countrywide effort. Even the army got involved. But we, we did it. By mid-March, 11 million people had received the AstraZeneca jab. The vaccine was largely being rolled out by age group. And when people in their early 50s were called up, one of those who was eager to get it was Neil Miller. Neil lived in Leicester. He was an engineer at Seven Trent Water. He played a role in keeping the water supply going. So he said, because he was a key worker, he said, we've got to have the injection. That's Cam, his wife. She's in her 50s and works in customer service. I can imagine her diffusing annoyed customers with her kindness and bubbly personality. She's caring and motherly. When we arrived at her house in Thank Leicester, she made sure we'd had a proper well, lunch. Really tasty. It's chickpeas. She even pulled and, out snacks uh, she bought especially for us. If you to my mum, she would have made your whole curry. <laughs> Cam met Neil at work. He was an engineer and she worked in the call centre. Cam's family are of Indian heritage and adopted a relatively traditional approach to marriage. She says that her parents didn't know much about British culture. So when she met Neil, who was white and crucially not Sikh, they were a little thrown at first. For me to marry out of our religion, out of our community. And so, but my parents, bless them, they were so lovely. They went with it. They wanted me to be happy. So they thought people might stop speaking to us, but that's up to them. Cam and Neil went on to have two children, a daughter, Sophie, and a son, Ishan who's now 23 years old. Some days I'd get snacks and we're just three of us, especially Isha and me, and I would sit and watch football. And they would always say to me, oh, I'm so glad you love football, Cam. Cam's family really embraced Neil and he became especially close with Cam's mother. Do you know every Saturday morning what he used to do? I used to say to him, Neil, it's Saturday, have a rest, no rush. He said, no, I've got to go and see mum. He'd get up, go to mum's, do all her jobs, clean her windows, whatever she needed doing, do that, then have breakfast with her. Neil got vaccinated on the 23rd of March, 2021. He came home that day and he said, I don't feel all that well. I feel like I've got cold coming on. And he says, probably just the after effects of the vaccination. A lot of us have experienced these symptoms and it's unpleasant, but it doesn't usually last more than a couple of days. Then uh, two weeks later, he came home and he had the severest headache and he went straight to bed. And this is a man who never slept. He, He doesn't believe in resting. He was such an active person. He played squash. He played football. And then so I said to him, go and have a rest. The next day, Neil decided to follow his wife's advice and called in sick. Cam was working at home when she heard Neil come down the stairs. And he came down and he said to me, Cam, I think I'm having a heart attack. And he said, ring 999. Then he said, uh, just drop me off. I can't wait that long. Because it was locked down, 
Cam couldn't go inside the hospital with Neil, so she went home and waited for news. At around nine, the telephone finally rang. And he said, they've said to me, I've had a heart attack, but my heart is basically strong, it's clear. There's no other problem apart from this one blood clot. And he says, as soon as they clear that blood clot, it made me feel better. Over the next two weeks, Neil was in and out of hospital with a variety of symptoms. His leg started seizing up because the state of his leg, it was black and blue. He often felt confused like the time he ran Cam in the middle of the night. He says, I can't remember the children's birthdays. And that broke my heart. It, and I sat up and I was like sweating and thinking, what, what is this man who's going to come home to me? Eventually, after several weeks of different treatments and medication, Neil started to feel better. And at the end of the month, he finally came home. And it looked like he was on the mend. So on the Saturday... Cam thought it would be nice for the two of them to go out of the house, to do something normal. I said, you sound so much better. What we'll do, you go and have a shower, we'll go to Mum's because she's been so worried. She'll be so happy to see you like this. Neil went upstairs to take a shower. And next minute, hear this horrible thud. And just, I knew, I knew he'd collapsed. What she describes sounds like a nightmare. Bathroom door was locked. He fell in front of the bathroom door. And I don't even know how I opened that door. And then I'm on to, you know, uh, 999 and they're telling me to turn him over. When I turned him around, he's just gurgling. And I just knew. I knew. I wanted him to talk to me. I wanted him to say something. But I knew he couldn't. That scene in the bathroom and me screaming outside, waiting for the ambulance to turn up. You know, and then my brother came and we're just... And, I, and, I, and I'm just waiting because I'd seen him and I knew that moment when I saw him, when I turned him around, he's not going to be... It's going to be a miracle if he survives. So we're just waiting and, and I'm feeling sick. 45 minutes the paramedics tried, 45 minutes, then they came down and I just knew what they were going to say and I just collapsed. The day after Neil passed away in that bathroom, I never forget my son, he went and lay where his dad went from. He just lay on that space. Neil died at home on the 1st of May 2021. Several weeks later, Cam received a call from the coroner's office and she was really surprised by what she heard. He said to me, he died of natural causes. He had pre-ischemic heart disease and rheumatoid arthritis. And I just, I just, I said, what? I said, no, he never suffered with anything like that. I said, his discharge papers say he had VITS. V-I-T-T, or VIT. That shorthand for vaccine-induced immune thrombocytopenia and thrombosis. That's the official name that's been given to this rare condition, which can develop after a person receives the AstraZeneca vaccine. It's a very specific set of symptoms. Your body develops both blood clots and low platelets. The consequence of having low platelets is that your blood doesn't clot as well. And the combination of these two things could in some instances be catastrophic. 
Neil's medical notes show that he was being treated for this condition when he was in hospital. For Cam, hearing that her husband died of natural causes, that didn't sit right. It turned out that Neil's GP felt the same. He rings and he says, Cam, what they put on in this certificate? And he said the haematology nurse at the practice, she can't understand it. She's written to the coroner's office, said, why have you put this down as cause of death? But there was something else. When Cam got the post-mortem report, it said, in my opinion, the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine has not caused or contributed to this man's death in any way. Then he'd actually emphasise nothing to do with the AstraZeneca vaccine. This does seem really odd. And it bothered Cam. And then a few days later, I rang them back. And I said, I want you to, you know, reopen the inquest. This is, there's something gone wrong. Within a few days, the coroner reopened the inquest. Getting the death certificate to mention the vaccine was important to Cam. Not only because she felt Neil's death wasn't recorded properly, but soon she realised that not having VIT on the certificate also had some very real practical consequences. Because what the coroner's office put on that certificate, I can't even claim for compensation. Cam's referring to the financial support scheme there. I'll come back to that in a minute. It took over a year for the inquest to conclude, and when it came through, the findings were different. Neil's death was due to the vaccine. It says myocardial infarction caused by the vaccination. What they have missed off it is AstraZeneca. So it's caused by the vaccination. I felt, yes, this is justice now. I can claim for the compensation, but it gave me fight. It, it gave me this feeling that you are right and you need to take this further. Cam's not alone. It's not just me. It's this awful situation that's, you know, befallen all these people and we need, we need our voices to be heard. Cam joined a group of people like her whose lives have been affected by VIT. Together, they're suing AstraZeneca. So my name is Kate Scott. I'm 34 years old. My husband, Jamie, he's 47-year-old. We are parents to two amazing, beautiful, resilient young boys. Jamie had his vaccine on the 23rd of April, 2021. Ten days later, he woke up with a headache. I thought it was a stroke. It wasn't a stroke. It was VIT. He left the house and the children didn't see him again for 123 days. That's more than four months without seeing their father. Three times the doctors thought Jamie wouldn't make it. I was updated daily about how serious it was, called in a couple of times to make the longest journey ever to say goodbye to him, which I did alone on a ward in PPE. But Jamie did make it. We feel like the luckiest and lucky people because despite all of this, Jamie made more of recovery than anyone thought possible. Jamie describes that the only thing that feels natural to him of everything in his life, from getting dressed to just going through the day, is guitar, brings him joy. But everything else is difficult, from getting dressed to being a parent of two active boys to having a place in society. Um, he can't work, he can't drive, he's got blindness from the stroke in both of his eyes. Kate and her husband, along with 80 other people, have decided to sue AstraZeneca. It's a lot of work and the claimants are split between two firms. I feel very nervous. 
feel proud that we've got the strength and support of our close family and friends to do that because it's really emotional going through it. It's a heavy load to carry actually because I want justice for Jamie and our family so we can move on but I know there's all the people behind us who need that gate to be opened for them as well. It's a real David and Goliath story. Not only is AstraZeneca a massive pharma company, but the UK government also provided an indemnity. That means if the claimants win, the government pays out. We asked AstraZeneca about the legal claim. A spokesperson said that they didn't comment on ongoing litigation matters. And they also said that... Patient safety is our highest priority, and regulatory authorities have clear and stringent standards to ensure the safe use of all medicines, including vaccines. Our sympathy goes out to anyone who's lost loved ones or reported health problems. So my name's Sarah Moore, and I'm the lawyer that's representing a growing group of people who are taking AstraZeneca to court. Sarah Moore is one of the lead lawyers taking on the drug company. She doesn't fit the image of a stereotypical lawyer, When she comes into the studio, she's really relaxed, laid back. She doesn't speak in legal jargon, and I can see why her clients really like her. She's actually been fighting pharmaceutical companies for a really long time. She met her first VIT clients in early 2021, when the first cases of the condition started to emerge. But we were very much picking up these cases in real time, just as, I think, in some ways we were learning more as a nation about what this complication was. We were also seeing that directly from our clients. So it was, yeah, it was very raw and very real to start off with. At the beginning, people like Cam needed help with navigating the vaccine damage payment scheme. You know, that's the compensation scheme that Cam mentioned earlier. When you've been harmed by a vaccine, you can apply to that scheme. What you need to prove is that on balance, it's the vaccine that caused the problem. But Sarah Moore and Kate Scott explain that getting this support can be tricky. In order to access that, you have to show 60% disablement. Now, that 60% is an archaic calculation which draws upon legislation that was in place during the Second World War. So the standards really work on the basis of amputations, whereas if you've got a neurological injury, it's it's much more difficult to, to demonstrate that in the way that the assessment panel want you to at the moment. So some people have had a report back saying you are only 35% disabled, you are only 47% disabled, you are not entitled to a penny. Now 40%, 20%, whatever is life-changing. So these 201 people have got confirmation via the government that the vaccine caused harm and injury to them, but because it is not 60%, they're not entitled to anything. Since speaking to Kate, that figure has gone up even more. And even successful claims only ever get a flat fee of 120000 On the face of it, that seems like a lot of money. But in some cases, it can barely touch the side of what's needed. Kate has had to totally reconfigure her life in order to care for Jamie. For our circumstances, I think the vaccine damage payment scheme is inefficient because £120,000 in 2023 does not go very far. Now that both of us have lost our salary, um, we got our house based on our salary, like most people do. And actually, when our mortgage is due to renew, I now work two hours a week. And I'm really worried that our children and Jamie and me are going to lose our safe space, our family home, because he did the right thing and took the vaccine when the government told him to. Sarah Moore explains that in Cam's case, Neil was the main breadwinner. So... In Cam Miller's case, 
because her husband died very tragically at the relatively young age of 50 with at least 17 years more work and income available to them as a couple, that income is lost. When you start looking at the value of that over the course of those 17 lost years, plus pension and everything else, you start to understand that 120000 is almost a derisory amount. And that's when you only think about it in financial terms. It doesn't take account at all of the fact that she's lost her life partner, her children have lost their, their father and, and all of that future together. He said, look... We worked so hard, we brought the children up. Now it's our time. So I'm just going to look after you for the rest of my days. And uh, those words just haunt me. And getting the money takes time. Considering he had uh, a certificate saying he died from it, it still took a year. Still took a year. And every time I'd ring up, it's been passed through the assessors. And I just thought, what are you assessing? The assessment, he's had two post-mortems. He's had an inquest reopened. What more do you need to know? Kate Scott says that some families are waiting up to 18 months. And we know that people in our group, because of that, if their partner was the breadwinner or even just joint income is what you live off, isn't it? You live to the the means, had to rely on food banks or get into debt because this was taking so long, even though there was, you know, complete evidence, there was no question that their loved one died because of the vaccine. As part of this project, we've interviewed several families who have all struggled to get financial support through the scheme. I asked Nadim Zahawi about reforming the compensation scheme. What are your thoughts on that? We can always challenge ourselves to speed these things up. I just think, you know, and that's a challenge across government. We did it at times of challenge, like the virus hitting us. Um, And, you know, one of my passions has been sort of post pandemic as we've entered into sort of the endemic period of of this virus. This is starting Um, to feel a little bit like a politician's answer. He's digressing here, but then he gets to the point. So Mm. I I would say, you know, I completely understand that. I hope the minister responsible would, would look at that very carefully. I'm sure they will. The reason this is important is that's the former vaccine minister calling for the government to look at changing the system which in politics is a big deal and could really help families who are currently waiting for payouts. But this isn't just about money. Kate Scott explains that not being able to talk about what happened to her husband was also traumatising. Once in a park I met someone and they asked us what had happened and as soon as I mentioned the vaccine they stopped talking. Um, Some friends and family never even reached out when they realised what it was. And sometimes it's easier just to say he had a stroke. And we got a lot more compassion and empathy from that, saying, oh, God, he's so young. I'm so sorry that happened to you, where we've tried the other way. And it's been more um, uncomfortable and people have been more unsure about what to say, so they just stop talking. In some instances, it seems that labelling someone anti-vax can be a way of silencing them. If we were anti-vax, we wouldn't have had any vaccination. My children, they were vaccinated when they were young. They had all the childhood, you know, immunisation programme that was then. So we're not anti-vax whatsoever. Neil wouldn't have gone for that vaccination. So it's not like, you know, we think everything's a conspiracy and, you know, we're against everything. I think the narrative needs to change. Vaccine injury and bereavement shouldn't be something discussed in the shadows. And I think actually long-term causes more vaccine hesitancy by knowing that if it did happen to you for any future vaccine that anyone might have to take, you would be ignored, belittled, blocked. I asked Sarah Moore 
if any of her other clients felt the same. There's a stigma in the playground. I've heard that if you start to become the anti-vax family, that's problematic. So I think that's really been an additional burden that the families have had to carry. And there's now studies to show that, that that's had a real psychological impact, I think, for those grieving, for those dealing with massively changed lives, but also not being able to express what's gone on here. She says the consequences of families not being able to speak about what happened could be extremely damaging, not just to individuals, but to society. We've trapped ourselves in this binary world where it's either pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine, and that's not how the world works. There is a whole grey area in between, and that space hasn't been created, I think, which is where conspiracy theories pop up, because very few things are purely black or, or white, and, and as a result, I think that's made these families feel like they're sort of being hidden away as a, as a dirty secret. The idea that some families might feel too much shame to talk about what happened is awful and incredibly unfair. And all of this raises an interesting dilemma about investigating these issues. If we report questions around the COVID vaccine, are we behaving responsibly as journalists? I know the Daily Telegraph are covering it now, but the press didn't want to cover it either for fear of creating fear or vaccine hesitancy. And actually, I think it's done the opposite by pushing us into the shadows and by ignoring us. Um, and I'm a very private person. Even being here now is really difficult for me. But we've gone through every other avenue, all the correct avenues, doing the government the right way, um, contacting people the right way, and they still just don't want to discuss it. Would investigating concerns around COVID vaccines cause a public health emergency? What if it made people hesitant towards other vaccines, including those given to children? How have you felt as a lawyer with that, if it's a kind of hot potato issue? Yeah, I, it's been problematic. The firm that I work for have been supportive from the outset, but we've had to tread a really careful path in terms of what we have said um, you know, the, the campaign was very much about reforming the statute. So the starting point was, look, there is a recognition that these people constitute a special category of people. You know, they, they have paid this massive price for the benefit of society. The statute recognises that. And it's important that we do the right thing by them. Have you felt personally um, at times conflicted about saying you're working on this case? Yes, absolutely. I feel that every time I've said we are working with people who've been seriously injured or have suffered bereavement as a result of vaccination, I felt the need to explain it all. I think at times I felt something similar, a need to explain or even justify that I think vaccines are important for society. And in the investigations team, we've sometimes wondered about that. I put my doubts to my colleague Catherine Rushton and asked her how she felt. Before the pandemic... As a unit, we had already looked into anti-vaxxers. And then in the pandemic, you know, obviously we were investigating it, but at the same time we were living it. And there was tremendous pressure on everybody to get vaccinated and to effectively promote vaccination. There was always an anti-vax element and we were very conscious of not wanting to feed that. But then if you're too conscious of it, you miss a real story, which is, hang on, actually... Are there legitimate concerns here? And I think it took us quite a while to arrive at a view that actually there were legitimate concerns and that we wouldn't be doing our duty as journalists if we didn't look at it more closely. Yeah, I think that's right. So I really remember the MMR scare 
So I think I've been carrying a little bit of baggage about whether to investigate these kind of issues. And if you do investigate them, how do you investigate them? Yeah, you know that even if you do investigate leads as they arise and are very objective about what you find, invariably with any subject, but particularly with vaccinations, legitimate findings will sometimes be seized upon by people from polarised positions who want to push those positions. And if you look at things now, we're in a phase of going through the government's mistakes. So it is only natural that we kind of look at the vaccination programme as well. We don't want to put people off vaccines, but there's a loss of faith in transparency. And that's sometimes what we're there for, is to kind of prod and push transparency. Because only by having that, people will then regain confidence. I asked Sahawi, as former vaccine minister, what he would say to the affected families. It's heartbreaking, of course, and people's physiology and, and reaction to any medicines. You know, heparin is administered every day. Zahawi is talking about the side effects of heparin, a drug that's commonly used. That argument has come up when talking about the COVID vaccine. Reaction for some people with a clotting in the back of the brain. The rare side effects are allergic reactions such as skin rash, mouth sores, fever, difficulty breathing, more prone to bleeding, bruising, fever, infection. In a government press conference in March 2021, Sir Jonathan Van Tam, who was then Deputy Chief Medical Officer, read out the data sheet from a box of paracetamol on the TV. Nausea, sudden weight loss, loss of appetite, jaundice, yellowing of the eyes and skin. Those are documented rare side effects of paracetamol, but we all understand the benefits of them. Sarah Moore addressed this kind of rebuttal. We expect to be met with the argument that, you know, risk-benefit analysis, you know, it was a mass population rollout, of course some people were going to get hurt. But that's not an answer to the families who've lost loved ones in it, who are now living with people who've got very significant care needs. The answer is, well, we see that that's happened and that we need to make sure that you're adequately compensated. The whole point of the vaccine damage payment scheme was to create this statute that had a humane motivation that recognised that these people, that anybody who's being vaccinated was stepping up for the greater good. So to abandon people when the very worst happens isn't a humane thing to do. Zahawi also offered reassurance about the systems which approved and monitored the vaccines. We have one of the most rigorous systems in the world that is not administered by the NHS, but by the independent regulator. So the yellow card system, which every doctor, every nurse, every practitioner, individuals can report in. And all that data is examined by the independent regulator, the MHRA, and the yellow card system is transparent and will show if there are issues with any medicines in the United Kingdom. Sahawi mentions the MHRA. That's the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency. And I think that's equally important to maintain confidence in our, whether it's vaccine or any other medicines in the United Kingdom. This yellow card system is one where doctors or patients can essentially raise flags if they fear they've seen an adverse reaction to a drug or a medical device. Drugs manufacturers also have a legal obligation to make such reports. Zahawi certainly seems to think the system is solid, but some of the exchanges in Matt Hancock's WhatsApps raise questions about this. My colleague Catherine Rushton has been looking into it. 
So there was a message sent on the 9th of January 2021. So that's basically after about five days of the AstraZeneca vaccine being rolled out and a month after the Pfizer vaccines launched in the UK. So Matt Hancock says, How strong is our pharmacovigilance system to check events post-rollout? I was told we were doing it, but I worry that the details will be shonky. And then Sir Chris replies, Reasonable, but needs to get better. There will be cases. Understanding exactly what someone means in WhatsApp messages can sometimes be a bit tricky. But what's really lucky here is that Matt Hancock talks about this exchange in his own book. In the messages, he uses this word, pharmacovigilance. It's likely you've never come across that word before, but Matt Hancock actually explains what it is. He says, We have two parts of what's called the pharmacovigilance system. One, to register all adverse events to check they're not worryingly regular, and another to check if anyone gets COVID afterwards. As Catherine explained, Matt Hancock says in his message that our system for monitoring is a bit shonky. That seems a bit worrying. The yellow card reporting scheme that Zahawi talked about is one of the key planks of our pharmacovigilance system. Catherine's been comparing what we do with other systems elsewhere in the world. So one of the key differences with our system is that when you look at the equivalent schemes in many other countries, healthcare workers are obliged to make reports when they see adverse events, whereas here it's voluntary. Cam told me that she was one of the people who made a yellow card report after Neil died. She said she didn't hear anything back afterwards. Of course, that might be because the regulator had all the information it needed from the hospital. But in her mind, it raised questions about the system. We asked Matt Hancock about WhatsApp messages that appear to question pharmacovigilance, and he said, Multiple reports from deeply credible institutions have found that the science, rollout and pharmacovigilance of the UK vaccine rollout was exceptional. To imply otherwise is debunked nonsense. We also asked Sir Chris Whitty about the WhatsApp exchanges, but he didn't respond. We also approached the MHRA for comment. They gave us a statement. It's a little bit wordy, so bear with me. They said, Public safety is our top priority. The MHRA authorised the COVID-19 vaccines following a rigorous review of their safety, quality and efficacy. The MHRA put in place a comprehensive COVID-19 vaccine surveillance strategy. This proactive and continuous monitoring strategy was based on a wide range of information sources from the UK and internationally. When a link between a COVID-19 vaccine and a safety concern was identified, the MHRA took action. The organisation has previously said, quotes, that it takes all reports with a fatal outcome in patients who have received a COVID-19 vaccine very seriously. And every report with a fatal outcome is reviewed carefully. Sarah Moore is clear that while the AstraZeneca vaccine was safe for most, for the families she represents, it had the most terrible consequences. Matt Hancock and all of the news around it telling us that, look, there is this thing, there is this possibility emerging, but the vaccine is fundamentally safe. Now, of course, for for most of us, it was fundamentally safe, but for those whom we represent, it wasn't. We asked AstraZeneca. A spokesperson said 
body of evidence in clinical trials and real-world data that showed the vaccine has continuously been shown to have an acceptable safety profile and regulators around the world consistently state that the benefits of vaccination outweigh the extremely rare potential side effects. There's a long road ahead for Cam Miller, Kate Scott and their families. By the end of the year, about 80 cases similar to Jamie's will be filed in the hope of getting answers and accountability from AstraZeneca and the government. In October 2023, MPs are debating two bills put forward by a backbencher that could change how those injured by a COVID vaccine are compensated. It's rare for a private member's bill to make it into law, but maybe having these conversations in Parliament is creating a space for these stories to finally be heard. I'd really like an apology and for someone to say sorry that it happened. It's taken two years for me to be able to talk about it without um, crying, to be honest. I just hate the injustice of it and um, the loss of the life we were going to have. And even, you know, down to a relationship, becoming a carer is very different to a young husband and wife who had two young children and enjoyed life. It's very different. Um, so I, some days I feel very sad, other days I feel very proud. And then I feel a bit frightened about what the future for our family looks like. What is the point of my life now? I says, if I didn't have the children, I probably would have gone with Neil. But then I think, you know, this is what you're going to do. I've made a plan. I says, you're going to go out there. You're going to show the world that you're still strong. You can still laugh. You can still be happy. And then the biggest thing is, your children will see you as a role model. They will say, look what our mother did. I'm Claire Newell, and this is the Lockdown Files podcast. Thank you for listening. If you like the series, please leave a five-star rating and a short review on Apple Podcasts. Kate Scott and Vib UK have set up a crowdfunding campaign to help them with the legal costs. You can find the link to the campaign in the article about Kate and Jamie on The Telegraph's website. We've added the link to that article in the show notes. Please consider taking out a Telegraph subscription. We couldn't have made this show without our subscribers. Listeners to this podcast can get exclusive sign-up deals at telegraph.co.uk forward slash podcast. And if you have any information to share, please email us on lockdownfiles at telegraph.co.uk. This episode of the Lockdown Files podcast was written by me and Adelie Pogemont-Ponte. Adelie Pogemont-Ponte is also the series producer, with Janet Easton working as co-producer. The investigations team behind it are Catherine Rushton, Sophie Barnes and Janet Easton. The other reporters who worked on the Lockdown Files are Robert Mendick, Hayley Dixon, Tony Diver and Jack Leather. Sound design and mixing by Elliot Lampitt. The executive producer is Louisa Wells. Thank you.